Welcome to episode 215 of X-Limes, where we're going to be closing out a volume. And today is the final issue of X-Men Volume 5, which, uh, you know, we talk about renumbering here every once in a while. Um, Not a fan of it. (laughs) I'm very much not a fan of it. I would be just as fine with uh, X-Men number 22 uh, being the first in the new direction, or... Hell, you know, Uncanny X-Men number 670 or whatever the hell it would be. That would be just fine with me as well. But that is not the world we're living in, unfortunately. So uh, let's get into it here. This is X-Men Volume 5, number 21, at an August 2021 cover date. The story's called The Beginning. Get it? Because it's the end and... Okay. Written by Jonathan Hickman, with art by Nick Dragata, uh, Russell Dodderman, Lucas Warnick, and Sarah Pacelli. Colors, Frank Martin, Matthew Wilson, Sonny Goh, and Nolan Wooded. Letters, VCs, Kate. Clayton Cowles, designs Tom Muller, edits Bisa White Sapolsky. Cover price, $4. And this one went on sale June 9 of 2021. Now we open, and it is 8.12 p.m. Of course, this is Hellfire Gala, so we are getting just the uh, the high points of the evening from the points of view of uh, certain characters. So, uh, like I mentioned over the course of the past couple of episodes... I don't know if we're ever going to get a collection where these are all sort of in order. I don't think we will be. You never know. But moving on, it is, uh, again, 8.12 p.m. We see Namor, and he's being served some drinks by a Madrox dupe. Now, uh, the Madroxes, they're in their old costumes, you know, with the little head sock and the dots and stuff. Lucky for them, because they get to sidestep, you know, wearing a Jumbo Carnation abomination. So, good on them. Now, this serving of drinks is interrupted by the arrival of a pair of village idiots. And uh, this is Xavier and Magneto, who continue to look absolutely ridiculous. Um, I think at this point we officially need to draw a line under uh, making fun of Kitty Pride's old self-designed costumes. I think we're not allowed to do that anymore after seeing how ridiculous everybody looks in the Hellfire Gala. I think we need to make that a law in X-Men fandom. We can no longer make fun of Kitty wearing, you know, knee uh, leg warmers and roller skates and, uh, you know, the cat's eye thing. We're not allowed to do that anymore. Anyway, as mentioned, Xavier looks like a slot machine vomited on him, and uh, Magneto looks like a cross between a pimp and a kid's party magician. Now, they're here to chat up the Submariner. Now, Namor makes it pretty clear he isn't even happy to have shown up. Not exactly sure why he did, maybe just a morbid curiosity. Whatever the case, X and M would very much like to have Namor on their side, and even go as far as to offer him one of the vacant seats on the Quiet Council. 
which Namor, being Namor, mocks, and it's pretty great. Uh, he's all, ooh, a seat? I should say so. You people should be offering to abdicate seats for me, much less giving me a vacant one. He then tells them basically to stick it up their asses. Um, Namor says he holds domain over 70% of this planet. Why would he ever waste his time on some island's council? He leaves the geeks and goes to stand with his old Illuminati running buddies, uh, Iron Man, Captain America, Mr. Fantastic, Black Panther, and Doctor Strange, which might be a little bit troubling. From here, a double-page spread of roll call and cred. Our characters include, but are not limited to, Professor X, Magneto, Namor, Cyclops, Jean Grey, and Emma Frost. There will be at least three times as many people showing up in this book here. Now, it's 10.15 p.m. next, and it's the election, which... You know, might have been something I'd be looking forward to had Marvel not spoiled it like three months ago. In fairness to Marvel, I'm sure some of the uh, wonderful social media folks out there would have already spoiled it for us anyway, so uh, eh, it doesn't really matter. Now, Cyclops and Jean call for everyone's attention. Uh, and now, they call this an election, but it's maybe not so much in, like an election the way we look at it. It's more of like a melding of minds here. All the mutants get to express their interest in becoming an X-Men, and then... A consensus is made or something Where, you know, the perfect Cadre is uh, assembled I guess this You know, sort of formation here This uh, way of doing business is Why we're not getting those actual election pages That we saw when Marvel was spoiling this thing Over the course of a week back in March or April I really assumed that we'd be seeing those pages here And we don't Now, whatever the case um, It doesn't take long for Gene to tabulate the whatever the hell it is, and uh, names our new Volume 6 team. Now, they are, I mean, to the shock of nobody, uh, in addition to She and Cyclops, Rogue, Sunfire, Wolverine, that's X-23, Sink, and Polaris. Again, we knew this. Now, the new X-Men dramatically pose on their horrid Jumbo Carnation abominations, wasting yet another entire page spread in the process. Uh, we get a lot of that here. It's almost as though... I mean, I'm projecting here, but maybe they didn't. Maybe they realized there wasn't a whole lot of story to tell here. So uh, we're just getting like a showcase for the multiple artists we have on this book. It's like, here, do a full page spread. Hey, do two of them. You know, we're just naming a team and then throwing some, some garnish on it. I don't know. From here, we actually get some stuff that's a lot of fun here. This is info pages, believe it or not. And it's more sinister secrets. It's been a long time. I think it's been. Boy, uh, the better part of two years since we had a sinister secret here. I think it was in Marauder's number something or another, very, very early on in the run here. Now, we're starting with sinister secret number 51. So it looks like we're not privy to secrets 20 through 50, because uh, we had like the first 10 or 15 during Hoxpox, and then we had another 5 or maybe it was another 10 in uh, in Marauder's. So we were up to number, tw number 19 or 20, I believe. It's a... Uh, a lot of missing secrets. Maybe we'll eventually revisit those. Uh, but let's start with Sinister Secret number 51. It goes a little something like this. Uh, this quiet council member isn't actually fooling anyone. They're fooling everyone. Wear a mask long enough and eventually it starts wearing you. Such a shame not being able to let things go. Now the thing with the Sinister Secrets is sometimes they're very um, figurative. Sometimes they're literal. You know, so if we look at this one literally... Um, this has got to be a reference to Professor X always wearing the Cerebro helmet. You know, that is a mask. Now, this might be referring to him 
maybe becoming less of a man with humanity and feelings, like an actual well-rounded person, and uh, maybe just becoming the wearer of Cerebro? I don't know, maybe. Um, and of course, uh, a well-rounded person is uh, relatively speaking, of course, because this is Professor X we're talking about. Sinister Secret number 52. She doesn't have it yet, but one way or another, this mutant always, always, always gets what she wants. Will it be given to her, or will she? Will it have to be taken? Doesn't matter. The real question is, what's in the box? Could it be diamonds, or something far more valuable? Now, I wonder if maybe this has something to do with that box or crate of whatever it was that was delivered to Emma Frost back in uh, Marauders 21 by the Shi'ar. Now, we know also that there's a mutant who really, really wants something. And uh, that's talking about Mystique wanting her wife Destiny back. Now, I wonder, could she have perhaps impersonated Emma and ordered the Shi'ar package? Is this why it came to Emma, but Emma herself didn't remember ordering it? I don't know. Perhaps that's a, uh, a step toward Inferno. We'll see. Sinister Secret 53. I bet you'd like to know how this fittest of all mutants is handling the second genesis of his mu- of his eternal life. Sorry, you'll have to wait to find out. I mean, clearly, this is Apocalypse, right? Um, and I guess we're going to have to wait to see a little bit more about him. Sinister Secret 54. Seducer made an honest man of the island's favorite boy, but what unspoken secrets are coursing through the nervous system of the favorite boy's island friend? Are you listening? I know that you are. Now, the island's favorite boy is probably Doug, right? Uh, He's now married, thus an honest man, and I think, was Bay the Blood Moon Sword the seducer? Was that it? I I don't remember off the top of my head. Uh, Sinister here presumes that Krakoa is keeping a secret and is always listening, um, and maybe that secret is a Scottish one. Hmm. Well, he doesn't say that. I'm, you know, projecting a little bit. Sinister Secret 55. Regarding secrets and secret alliances, and the shadow play that is the great game of nations... Just how many ruling councils are there now circling the sun? I'll never tell, but if you say two, you're definitely too low. All right, so he says two. And we know that we have the Quiet Council of Krakoa and also the Great Ring of Arako. There's two. Well, there's more than two, right? What could be the third, the fourth, the fifth? Who knows? We know Orcus is being set up as having something of a... An organization, right? We've seen those heavily redacted pages. We know that uh, Henry Gyrick is uh, one of the members of that. Uh, We don't know who the rest are. We don't even know what the other divisions are. So there's a ruling council, right? Uh, This is Marvel, of course, so it could just be some aliens. (laughs) You never know. Uh, It could be the Phalanx, perhaps. Um, Maybe it's Sword. Sword is... uh, I mean, Sword is... Semi-loyal to Krakoa, but we do know that they have their own hierarchy and structure. We know that they have their their color-coordinated divisions and departments, and uh, I guess we could say like they have their six. That is a ruling council of sorts. Also, uh, earlier on in this issue, we saw some uh, big brains getting put together in the Illuminati. Could the Illuminati? Be another ruling council here? Could the Illuminati be working in the shadows, as they usually do, to uh, maybe keep an eye on or quash uh, the Krakoan growth? Uh, I guess we'll find out. There's always a possibility that this could be referring to something we haven't even seen yet. So 
a lot of opportunities there for a lot of interesting stories. So, uh, I mean, unless they're aliens, let's 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 hope they're not aliens. But if it's Orcus, uh, the Phalanx, Sword, Illuminati, I'm down with it. I'm down with it. Sinister Secret number fifty-six. And speaking of things that come in twos, two empty seats on the Quiet Council are too too many. Look for there to be moves made in the filling of those empty seats, regardless of how many favors have to be called in or how many unwise alliances are formed. Just remember, when everyone has a secret, no one can be trusted. I guess that means we're going to finally get around to filling those empty seats. I think we're still at uh, two or two and a half empty seats. Of course, Apocalypse is gone. Uh, Gene stepped down to uh, restart the X-Men. And we've been kind of like... Just tap dancing around whether or not Storm is going to stay. We don't know if she's staying. We don't know if she's going. We know she's not part of the Marauders anymore. I I don't know. We'll find out. We'll find out. Sinister Secret number 57. For far too long, they shared an existence. Now the one has become two. The first is a shattered captain of a demanding queen, and the second a sinister sword under a sinister thumb. How long will the second stay there? How many more sinister demands will be too many? No one knows, but I think we're getting close. (sighs) I would say, please don't be a reference to Betsy and Quinan, but uh, I'd be kidding myself, because of course it is a reference to Betsy and Quinan, because that is a story we will not let die. Now, I mean, let's go into the sinister secret here. Betsy, Captain Britain, was shattered during Exit 10s and is now under the demanding queen in Saturnine, so it's definitely Betsy. Uh, Quanon wields a sword and works under Mr. Sinister in Hellion, so she is the sinister sword under a sinister thumb. Can we just not? Please. Can, we, need to, uh, we need to just kill one of them. <laughs> we do. We need to kill one of them or merge them back together. This is just getting so played out. Uh, sinister Secret 58. It's still the early days of the Viscoran excavation of Blight Worlds, but an unknown material of immeasurable worth has begun appearing in the Crooked Market. So far, the Mad Jasper has snatched up every piece as soon as it's available for trade, but don't you worry, our Confederacy of Capes is set on acquiring some, by hook or crook. Now the Viscora, we did see them being put to work mining on Blightspoke in in Otherworld during uh, the end of X of Tens. They are, of course, those aliens who were kind of inhabiting the sword base that uh, Kid Cable released uh, with his, uh, you know, Space Knight sword. Uh, looks like we might have some Jim Jaspers versus Mr. Sinister ahead of us, which, I tell you, I'm all in for that. I mean, that might be the only other world story that I won't complain about, especially if uh, Zeb Wells is writing it. Next, Sinister Secret number 59. Promotions are hard to come by when everyone is a resurrected immortal, but sometimes a change has to be made when an unexpected variable is added to the equation. Heroes and their do-gooder ways, always an inconvenience for a practical mutant. I haven't the foggiest idea what this might be a reference to. If anyone out there knows, eh, let me know. Next, Sinister Secrets Revealed, reposted. Uh, It's one we've already read, but uh, in the interest of completionism, let's hit it again. We don't hear this word spoken often, so when we do, it's best to pay attention, because when you square that circle, what took a long time to build can come crumbling down rather quickly. Inferno. Now, we got this tease way back in an earlier Sinister Secret segment, so this is uh, serving as a reminder, because Inferno is happening pretty soon, so we'll you know be able to say that we knew it when. 
Finally, sinister secret number 60. What sinister someone has been hard at work studying the vile helix of a vile world? Psst, it's me. Shh. Now, this is very clearly a locus vile reference, right? Uh, we know from solicits that Tarn and the gang will be showing up in the pages of Hellions pretty quick. So, we also know that Sinister has the DNA from the locus vile that was delivered to him by uh, Quanan, his uh, sinister sword under his sinister thumb. And we also know that... Uh, a copy of Mr. Sinister, who was uh, killed by the uh, Locust Vile, is uh, back after reading the latest issue of Hellion. So definitely looking forward to seeing how this one plays out. Now, from here we get back to comics, and we get yet another full-page spread. Um, it's 11.26 p.m., and this page seems to be just a way for Marvel to do a little bit of star effing. Um, I think... The way the faces are drawn here, they're very, very particular, so I'm, I'm guessing I'm supposed to recognize most of these people. But alas, I do not. Um, I was hoping we'd see less and less of this, you know, star effing the further up the corporate ladder Joe Casada went. You know, like get him further away from actually drawing and writing these things, and maybe we'd stop seeing quite so much of this, but no. Uh, Emma has a chat with two masked people from a hidden city. Uh, now, they have some very interesting designs. I like the way that they are portrayed here. Emma asks them for the contents of a Kara Karuka box. She says they can keep the box. She just wants what's inside. We don't know what this is all about just yet, uh, but it would seem that Emma has some plans in the works. Now, off to the side, Cyclops star Fs with someone I don't recognize, which facilitates in him waxing on with this ridiculous monologue, which ends with him saying he's an X-Man or something like that. It's, it's very, very purple and uh, doesn't sound like Cyclops at all. Then, it's 11.45 p.m. and it's time for the fireworks, and this will all be leading to the big reveal of Planet Sized, which I'm guessing most of you already know. But, at the risk of spoiling it for a single one of you, because that's not what I do, I won't say anything more. But, that is where we leave it. Next episode is uh, not Planet Size. We're actually taking a detour over to Children of the Atom number 4, because that is the order in which Marvel wants us to read these things, apparently. But, uh, after that, we will be getting into Planet Size, so we can finally get that monkey off our collected backs here. We can finally talk about that thing that's been spoiled for so many of us. Out in the open. So uh, looking forward to that. I hope you are as well. But for now, let's talk about this final issue of X-Men Volume 5. Let's start with uh, some praise here. Um, I've always liked the way that Hickman writes Namor. Namor was probably the highlight for me during his uh, his Avengers run. Um, Namor was part of the New Avengers book, I believe. And I remember just absolutely loving the way that he was depicted. And here, it's, uh, it's no different. I, I like the way that... Uh, he was depicted here as being Namor, you know? Uh, he wasn't a, a team player. He wasn't going to bow. He wasn't going to fold. He stood his ground and was just telling it like it was. Um, it's not often we get to see people talking to Xavier and, and Magneto this way, especially since we don't really get a whole lot from, from outside of Krakoa, right? Uh, it seems like anytime we do get a visit from someone outside of Krakoa, the first thing they do is basically mock the uh, the pretend society that Krakoa is uh, trying to uh, to be. We had, uh, what's her face, Iska the Unbeaten when she visited, and or when, when uh, Magneto and Xavier visited her, I should say. 
she was just making fun of them for having like this kitty city, you know? It was like a high school world government extracurricular club, right? <laughs> That's what it seems like. They don't really um you know, they, they they don't really have so much of a of a government, right? It's this quiet council, but it's portraying itself as a government. It's not really. It kind of is, but at the same time it on the world stage, it's it's laughable, and it's nice to have Namor kind of point that out, and it's just like, oh, you're going to give me a seat. How wonderful. You know, I, I think that's perfectly in, in fitting with uh, Namor's uh, sensibilities and his characterization. So really, really cool stuff there. I'm also a bit intrigued. I didn't—when the Illuminati was introduced, I remember thinking it was a really cool idea, you know, as a one-off— even in canon, in continuity, as a piece of Marvel lore and a piece of Marvel history, I, I like the idea because it stands to reason that if you have these big brains, you, you, you'd probably see them congregate or at least kind of uh, orbit in the same sort of uh, atmosphere. They'd be bouncing ideas off of one another. They'd be thinking about... They'd be troubleshooting ahead of time. I mean, that's kind of Reed Richards' whole gimmick, right? He's looking for problems that might come down the line a lot of the times here. He's working on a machine that'll that'll figure out what's what the trajectory of the world is here and, and society and trying to you know see possibilities and avoid pitfalls stuff like that. So it would stand to reason that an Illuminati would be a thing. I didn't like so much when Bendis started like really over relying on it and using it as kind of the you know get out of jail free card for like every corner that he wrote himself into. That felt a little bit cheap. It really cheapened the concept to me. But here, I think that uh, I wouldn't mind seeing them again. Uh, the world is changing here in the Marvel Universe, right? Uh, in, in addition to the fact that we can't go a week and a half without another alien invasion, we also have these islands floating around now. We've got Kurokoa, we got Arako, we got former mutant terrorists as statesmen on the you know on the global stage. It's a it's a weird time, right? Um, we got mutant meds, magical mutant meds that are going to cure humanity's ails. And uh, I, I guess if we're going to play ball and pretend that Excalibur's a thing that exists, uh, I guess England's got those too. So the Illuminati probably wants to uh, be involved and figure out uh, what's what. So I, I like the idea that the Illuminati might be a thing again, so long as they don't become overexposed like they did during the, uh, the Bendis days here. Uh, what else do we get in this issue here? A uh, whole lot of star effing. Um, and again, you'll have to you'll have to excuse my ignorance because I am I am pop culture. Uh, uh, what is that word here? Immune? Not, not not so much immune. I just don't know it. I don't really watch a whole lot of uh, movies. Um, I also don't watch a whole lot of television. Uh, I mean, the wife and I just watched Parks and Recreation for the first time. I mean, that show ended a long time ago, and we just barely watched it. We're very far behind. We watched The Sopranos for the first time like six months ago. So, I mean, we're very far behind on pop culture. I think uh, I'm probably pretty good on like late 90s pop culture is about as, as far as I go. So I didn't recognize a lot of these faces who I'm sure I was supposed to. Uh, to me, it was uh, more of a distraction than anything. It's like because I'm looking at these faces. It's like, well, who's that supposed to be? Is that a Is that a Marvel character? Is that... Just some celebrity that uh, Marvel would like to, you know, kind of you know, tickle the nape of, right? Just to be like, hey, we put you in a book. And I I, I don't know. Because to me, I mean, and this is me being a comics first sort of guy. Uh, if you're going to put people, like real life people in these books, like 
maybe have Chris Claremont visit. Well, where was he? Uh, maybe John Byrne, um, Scott Lobdell, Grant Morrison, you know. Um, maybe the people who actually affected the X-Men, rather than somebody who has a cable television show who uh, probably won't even mention this on their social media. Maybe? I don't know. <laughs> maybe maybe put some people who actually give a rat's ass about the characters in there and uh, were a part of their history. But that's just me as a comics-first guy, and of course, Marvel is not a comics-first company anymore, so what are you going to do? Uh, we had the election here, of course. The election was weird. I read the uh, the bit that uh, Gene was talking about a couple times here, trying to figure out exactly what in the hell was going on with the mutant mind meld or whatever, and just uh, the odd tabulation of... Uh, I don't know if it was just a measure of compatibility, uh, usability... Um, Passion? I, I, I mean, it couldn't be a popularity contest because Sunfire's on the team and everybody hates his guts. I, I don't know exactly what it was, but uh, it felt underwhelming to me. It really did. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what I might have been expecting from this, but since it was spoiled for us so long ago, I probably, I probably set whatever sides I had way too high. Um, this was never going to be like, and you know, I, I, I don't often. Cite the Legion of Superheroes as something that I'd like to see more of in uh, other books, but they had elections like like every third issue it seemed, and uh, I, I kind of like the way that they, that they played with that sort of thing here. I think this issue, you know, and it's odd because I'm I'm going to come across as a as a bit of a hypocrite here because I complained that Excalibur, the Excalibur chapter of the Hellfire Gala, was more was an Excalibur first book. Right? It was all about, let's let's set up Excalibur stories. The fact that with the gala doesn't really matter so much. This is all about setting up what's to come for Excalibur. And I complained about that because I thought I saw it as Excalibur not playing ball. You know, not, uh, not showing respect to the rest of the line of books here. I have kind of the opposite feeling about this issue of X-Men here. I, I would have preferred it to be... And maybe this is just because I care about the subject matter a little bit more than I do things like Otherworld and uh, the Coven. But set up this issue as just the election, you know? Have have more of a stir, you know? I, I, you got to assume that this is well-known around Krakoa at this point, that there is going to be an election. Maybe include those pages that we got as spoilers back in the day. Maybe have characters like, oh man, I want to be an X-Man and this is why then we'd be able to maybe look at these characters and be disappointed for them if they don't get it, or be happy for them if they do, or maybe question why they did if they do. Like, maybe Sunfire doesn't want to be an X-Man, but he's picked, so he's going to be an X-Man. He was kind of conscripted. I mean, this is all me projecting and uh, armchair booking here, but the entire decision that they kind of hinged a lot of this, uh, this issue on feels kind of like an afterthought. It doesn't have... A whole lot of stakes to it. I just feel like could have done it a little bit better. Maybe show a character like like Chamber, you know, being like excited and wanting to be a part of this team, and then being just devastated when when his when his you know teammate Sink gets a spot and he doesn't. Maybe give us a little bit of that. But again, and I, I don't know exactly what I wanted from this. I just know I didn't really get it. Uh, other than that. Um, well, this is uh, this is where we end volume five of X Men, and next month we'll kick off probably a twelve to fifteen issue volume six of uh, of X Men. But uh, 
Outside the story, we had a lot of fantastic artists on board here. Really, really good-looking book. Uh, I would have appreciated less full-page spreads, but uh, I, you know, I guess I understand it is kind of a something of a jam book for uh, showcasing these these great artists. So I guess we got to allow it. And I mean, despite the fact that I've been, I probably am coming across mostly negative on this, I didn't hate the issue. Um, I, it didn't blow me away, but I guess I can come away from it saying I kind of dug it. But that's all I got to say about this issue. Uh, let's hop into the uh, mailbag before we cut out of here. We got a couple of letters to get to. We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about Way of X number one. Oh boy, one of my favorites of this run. He says, Between you and Andrew, most of my thoughts about this comic have been covered. It was absolutely wonderful. I came into it wonder, worrying that it could never hit my expectations as they'd been gradually building since The Crucible first appeared, and my expectations were exceeded. Magnificent stuff. And oh boy, is it ever. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. I can't wait for the end of this month when it finally shows up on Marvel Unlimited so we can get uh, a few more thoughts on the uh, on this just fantastic book here. It is, this is like the only book in this run so far that I've actually considered just uh, buying a whole bunch of digital copies of it and just gifting them to people because I want to hear their thoughts on this uh, book. That's how much I like this book. I'm willing to spend, you know, five bucks per copy to send it to people just so I can hear their thoughts on it. It's just, oh boy, it is a wonderful, as Damien put it, it's magnificent. It's really, really good. Damien continues. Of course, having a weird brain, I spent most of the episode thinking about cheese toasties. (laughs) There's something about the unequal cultural exchange between the U.S. and the U.K. that means I know what Americans call a toasted cheese sandwich, but you don't know what we call call the same thing. I actually find myself craving a cheese and onion toasty. I'm having to physically stop myself from going into the kitchen and making one. So, uh, I guess a cheese toasty is a grilled cheese sandwich to, uh, to us Yanks, right? Uh... I wasn't sure exactly what it was. I had a feeling it was something along those lines, but I wasn't 100% sure, and I just thought it would be a little bit funnier for me to keep get, keep asking what it was throughout the episode than, uh, you know, just pop it into Google and find out for myself. Damien continues, I'm also not a fan of Dr. Nemesis's new look, but I hear he's a fun guy. <sighs> um, now, fun guy, of course. Uh, Dr. Nemesis is woefully without his hat. During this run so far And he has oh, I, I can't even really think about it He's got like mushrooms growing out of his head It is it is really gross um, I don't know what it is about that That, that just like really gets to me It like skeeves me out Like the worst kind of goosebumps It's like whoa I, I remember uh, What was it uh, I mean I know what it was I'm trying to remember if I can Pull the actual issue number out of the top of my head, and I, I cannot. Uh, the issue of uh, Alan Moore's Swamp Thing, where he produces like a potato that uh, that Abigail takes a bite out of, that just skeeves me out. Oh, it's just so disgusting. And this, you know, just having, oh, I, 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 I gotta stop. I gotta stop. I'm gonna gag. But uh, I guess we can call Doctor Nemesis a fun guy from now on. It's a, <laughs> it'll work in a pinch, right? Uh, Damien continues. I'm really just I'm, I'm just really excited to see where this goes next. I wonder if this is a deliberate setup for the trial of Magneto, as he seems pretty villainous in this story. And Professor X seems sympathetic for the first time in the Hox Pox Docs Rocks Socks Locks Box Fox era. I can't wait to find out. And you know that was my first thought as well. 
because we have in this issue uh, Nightcrawler goes to like a uh, boy, it's like a temple somewhere that has been you know co-opted into an Orcus base, and it's uh, like got like a museum of mutant atrocities in it. So they've got these sculptures of evil mutants. Basically, it's a way to kind of indoctrinate new followers or new um, agents of Orcus, I suppose, into you know, fomenting a hatred and fear of mutants, especially in this brave new world where mutants actually wield a little bit of political clout. And one of the statues was of Magneto, and it was a callback to X-Men number one at Cape Citadel, where he's launching the rockets like we saw over in Essential X-Lapsed episode one. And Nightcrawler was over there with his team, or his crew. I don't know if they're officially a team yet, but uh, he brought this one back. And brought it back basically to Raz Magneto, you know, to make fun of him in front of a crowd. And Magneto did not appreciate this at all, and he waxed on poetically about how, you know, that was a different time, and how, uh, you know, sometimes force is the only way. And uh, really came across as uh, a darker shade of gray than we've seen him since the start of this era. Conversely, Professor X is haunted by dreams of a patchwork man. Of course, we know what the patchwork man is from uh, Way of X number two, but the belief there is that he's being haunted by his son Legion. And so he goes to Nightcrawler for assistance, which makes him like a lighter shade of gray than we've seen him uh, up to this point. I think when we see Xavier nowadays, especially with his face obscured by the Cerebro helmet, we... Don't trust him right away. At least I don't. I, I figure that he's hiding something. I mean, Mr. Sinister said it himself in the Sinister Secrets here that uh, sometimes the mask becomes the person. Uh, I don't know that he's exactly trustworthy here. But in Way of X, we actually see him without the helmet, and he goes to uh, Nightcrawler for help. He actually you know, reaches out and is like, hey, I, I need assistance with this. So it made him very sympathetic. And, uh, I mean, relatively speaking, very sympathetic. Uh, it might just be mildly sympathetic, but for this era, uh, I mean, it doesn't get much uh, more sympathetic than this for Professor X. But a wonderful, wonderful issue that I could and have talked <laughs> for a long, long time about. Uh, and again, I really can't wait for this to hit Unlimited so we can get even more discussion. This is this is definitely a touchstone for the show here. I haven't felt like this since uh, The Crucible was introduced where I was, I couldn't wait for people who were listening to get to that point or just to chime in with their thoughts on The Crucible because that's, it was a biggie. And I think this is uh, just as big. It's so many, so many different wonderful facets of Way of X. So looking forward to more conversation. I was so happy to hear from Damien. I was uh, definitely looking forward to his thoughts on this issue as well. So thank you so much for writing in and sharing. Next up, we got Andrew talking about the second issue of the Hellfire Gala. This is X-Force number 20. He says, I definitely enjoyed this one better than the Marauders issue. I find X-Force to be a hit-or-miss title, so I don't regularly read it anymore. I did read the Terra Verde story arc, though, and was pleasantly shocked to see where that plot goes this issue. The White Queen confronting Sage about the takeover of a country actually felt like an important story development. So far, the Beast has had free reign to do all kinds of unsavory things for the greater good, and the thought of him facing some kind of judgment for it sooner rather than later is an interesting place for the story to go, especially with a high-profile trial on the horizon. Now, it could all amount to a hill of beans, but we can't worry about that now. We've got a gala to attend. 
And I'll, I'll definitely agree that X-Force was probably a stronger issue than Marauders, but as we talked about, uh, Marauders was, wasn't was really a story so much as it was uh, a collection of cameos and vignettes. So it's kind of hard to compare the two, but X-Force actually felt like like a story here, or the first part of a story, because we we're going to get a continuation of that over in, uh, in Wolverine here. Uh, one thing about uh, the White Queen confronting Sage, which we talked about during that episode, was uh, how great it was that Emma confronted her, not because of the the immorality of uh, the play, but the fear of uh, reprisal should the information ever get out. It uh, It's a bad look for Krakoa. It's a bad look for the mutants if they find out, if the world, you know, global stage finds out that... Uh, that they've been kind of puppet mastering this these plant people in an entire nation. I, I love the fact that Emma is more fearful of that than, you know, actually putting any thought into how just how evil <laughs> this is. Which, I mean, that's talking to the beast right there. Uh, he's done a lot of bad things, uh, thinking it's for the better, the betterment of the mutant future, and hasn't had to uh, hasn't had to answer for any of it yet. You know, and I, I mean, no pun on the beast here, but it's kind of the you give a monkey a gun thing. Who, who's at fault if it pulls the trigger? You know, um, Xavier has put Beast in this position where he's above the law. And so he is going to, he's going to test the limits, uh, of which he has none at this point. So I don't know if that's kind of the idle hands unchecked veering toward you know, absolute corruptible power. I, I, I don't know, but it, it will be interesting to see how this all works out here. As I've said, every time Beast comes up, that I, I hope we're leading to some sort of a redemption arc for him. Um, I think I mentioned that I saw it posited somewhere that uh, this might be maybe not our Hank McCoy, but maybe the Dark Beast being brought back. Maybe they used his DNA because they knew that he would be ruthless enough to do what needed to be done, whereas... Maybe our, you know, happy, bouncing blue beast <laughs> would be a little bit different. I mean, a guy can, a beast fan can hope, right? But uh, let's continue Andrew's message here. Speaking of the beast, I definitely understand your feelings about how he has been written in the Hox, Pox, Fox, Docs, and Socks era. I have my own particular gripes when it comes to how certain characters are written these days, which I will get into when we talk about Hellions. It's a sad fact that in modern comics, characterization is at the whim of whoever, whatever creator or editor is in charge at the moment. With Beast, however, I can't say that I absolutely hate it. I can see why the folks at Marvel would want the head of an NSA, CIA, KGB-type agency named The Beast to be a ruthless, immoral megalomaniac. The name The Beast sounds like a character in a John Le Carre Car spy novel. Is it obvious low-hanging fruit? Yeah. Does it feel like organic character development? Not really. Still, as a not-reader of X-Force, I kind of enjoy seeing where this goes. Maybe he'll be forced to join the Hellions. And yeah, very well said there. And, and you know, kind of like I just uh, was alluding to, it's, you know, Beast has, uh, has nobody to answer to. And Beast, let's say that this is the actual Beast and not the Dark Beast, because, frankly, it probably is the real Beast, right? Let's look at him for a minute. He has been put in the position of the fixer. Like, every time anything happens that threatens mutanity, right? Uh, the legacy virus. Uh, and I always joke about the beasts, um, about his quests, about his la- laboratorial quests, where 
every six months or so, we'll see him holding a test tube being like, oh yeah, the legacy virus, I gotta work on that. Oh yes, I'm hard at work at the legacy virus, and you know it because I'm holding a test tube. You know, and then we wouldn't hear about it for six months. And then again, we'd see him in a lab just like looking through a microscope. He's like, oh yes, the legacy virus. But let's look at that like actually as like a core issue. Beast has been tasked with fixing things. He's been tasked with cementing mutant kind's health, security, sanctity, uh, future, right? So he was hard at work at the legacy virus, but he didn't have any sort of uh, diplomatic immunity. He had to do everything according to a code of ethics. He couldn't just collect a bunch of infected mutants or infect a bunch of mutants with this virus and attempt to cure it. He had to do things ethically, which... I mean, that veers into subject matter that's far too uh, complex for a comic book show where we could talk about experimentation and, uh, and just scientific ethics here. But let's take it back a step here because I don't want to go down that path at all. Uh, Beast had to work under ethics and could not, couldn't just test willy-nilly. We jump ahead a decade and we have the endangered species, right? We had, uh, the, we had M-Day, No More Mutants. Beast was tasked with figuring that out as well. Why weren't there any new mutants? And this played out kind of like the legacy virus did, where every few months we'd see Beast hard at work in the lab for three or four panels being like, oh yes, the endangered species, how am I going to deal with this? Now, he would have to work through a code of ethics there, and this is at a point where the Marvel Universe was kind of a lot smaller, right? Um, Back in the 90s, the X-Men were kind of their own thing off to the side. They could do... There was more freedom to tell X-Men stories without affecting the wider Marvel Universe. In the 2000s, in the age of, you know, Civil War and uh, Secret Invasion and stuff like that, and 55 Avengers teams and the Initiative and all that, the Marvel Universe got much smaller. So an X-Men story would have to show ramifications in an Avengers story if it was big enough, and and vice versa, right? So X-Men creators were a little bit more hamstrung as to what they could have Beast do. And, I mean, they couldn't cure M-Day, right? That was certainly not an option for that time. So they had to drag it out. And, I mean, we can look at that in story as, like, Beast is hard at work toiling, trying to figure this all out, but he has restrictions on how far he can go in order to, to address this. So, again, he's hamstrung by a code of ethics. Now, as the head of X-Force, and as someone with, a, you know, full diplomatic immunity really doesn't have a code of ethics anymore, and he's making full use of that. We saw him kill Omega Red. We've seen him kill Terra Verdans. We've seen him infect an entire nation so they can rule over them. This is Beast Unchecked. And as the guy who's been the fixer for decades, a a toiling and largely unsuccessful fixer at that, now he's unchecked. He has the full backing of Professor X to do whatever he needs. And it's the first opportunity he has to not adhere to a, a set of ethics. And I can see how that um, that's appealing uh, for not only the character, but for the creators involved in writing Beast. But you guys know me. Uh, how did we walk this back? Do we walk this back? I feel like we will need to <laughs> eventually because, I, I mean, he's, he's very sadistic at this point. He is a sociopath. He knows what he's doing is wrong, hence why it's so secretive, right? If he wasn't ashamed of himself, this would just be all well-known. It would be out in the open. Yeah, I, you know, I blew a hole in a Mega Red's chest and put a, put a tracker in him. What are you going to do about it? But it's secretive. It's all secret. So he knows 
that it's not right. And yet, uh, not right is the best option for him and for X-Force. So that's what we get. Uh, Now, Beast, like Way of X, is a topic I can discuss and have discussed at great length. So I will try to put a button in it for now. I probably spend more time thinking about this stuff than is healthy. But let's get back into Andrew's message here. He says, there's not much I can say about the Deadpool plot other than that I enjoyed it. I'm glad it wasn't the only storyline, though. And uh, yeah, I agree. Deadpool is great in in small bursts, I feel. I feel he's better in small bursts, unless they're doing something that makes us feel sympathy for him. You know, I, I couldn't do a whole issue of him being Wile E. Coyote. I mean, we've seen a little bit of that in that Savage Avengers uh, sidebar we took during uh, King in Black. Very much a Looney Tunes character, which it's cute the first time, but when the entire issue is kind of hinged on it, it's like, where where are the stakes and why am I reading this? But having Deadpool here you know, showing up being like, no, no, I'm an honorary mutant, let me on the island. Uh, that was fun. That was fun enough. Now, Andrew wraps up with, I like that this issue used the higher profile that the Hellfire Gala gives it to further some of the X-Force plots in what seems to be like a major way. So far, the Hellfire Gala is one-to-one for me, and thankfully, Hellions is up next. So until Forge gets off his lazy butt and does something other than making that one-glove thing Domino wears, (laughs) make mine X-Last. And yeah, I mean, again, I'm going to sound like a hypocrite here because I didn't give X-Force any guff for furthering their storylines like I did Excalibur. But to me, it read differently. And and again, this might be... Maybe I just have like a knee-jerk bias against Excalibur that I need to come to terms with and apologize for before I talk about any issue of Excalibur. (laughs) But uh, this, to me, felt a little bit more organic in that, I mean, we're furthering the plot here, but it has to do with, like, Emma Frost calling them out, which... Wouldn't have happened had... Well, I mean, it could have happened if not for the Hellfire Gala, but it made more sense as part of the Hellfire Gala. We have our little Deadpool aside, which wouldn't have happened if not for the Hellfire Gala. So I feel like this story is very much rooted in the Gala, but also expanding on the X-Force story, where Excalibur was kind of the other way around. It's like, well, we need to do Excalibur stuff, but we also need to show that we're at the Gala, so we'll figure that out when we're done. Does that make any sense, or am I just a, a bitter, jaded... A hole. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, thank you so much for writing in on that one, Andrew. And I, and I got your uh, your further emails, and I really can't wait to discuss those with the folks as well. So thank you so much. And uh, if anybody out there would like to be part of the show and share your thoughts on anything that we talk about, or or just about anything at all, please feel free to find me. I'm easily found. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, on Instagram at Nineties X Men. You can shoot me an email over to WeirdComicsHistory at Gmail you can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. Now, for blog posts and show notes, you can head over to Chris's on InfiniteEarths.com. You can chat us up on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. Always some fun conversation there. I hope to see you there if you're, uh, if you're a user of Facebook and have any interest in talking about all sorts of silly X-Men stuff. Finally, for thousands of hours worth of comics-related audio, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And if while you're there, you like what you hear, or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it each and every day and has been for uh, 
nearing on six years now, I would love for you to spread the word, share the show, maybe tell a friend or two and ask them to maybe do the same if they, uh, if they like what they hear as well. Uh, it would really help the show, and it would really help me feel better about myself. So uh, I thank you in advance. Um, I'd also like to thank you all so much for sharing a little bit of your day with me today and allowing me to, uh, to reside in your ears for the better part of an hour. It really, really means the world to me. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.